1: Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Ladies
2: and gentlemen, welcome to Spark Will you please welcome your host, Charlie? Thanks for coming. Yeah, so for those that don't know, uh, Spark is a true storytelling night. They don't have to be funny. They don't have to be sad, but they often are. And uh, so the theme tonight is Daring Do, Daring Do, which is quite a grand thing. I had to look it up, Daring Do. It basically means, and I've written it on my hand, um, an action displaying heroism or courage. I was trying to think of one for myself. I came to the conclusion that I'm incredibly selfish and <laughs> cowardly. But I did text a few people just before the show, just to get some ideas. I text my ex-boyfriend, um, any excuse? <laughs> and I said, what has been your greatest act of heroism? And he genuinely <laughs> texted me back, saying, Cunnilingus, on the last day of Glastonbury (laughs) he will always be my hero please welcome our first hero of the evening David
0: so there I am six foot two tall dark and handsome 30 years old, going for my first swimming lesson. <laughs> I walk into the pool in a nice new pair of shorts, because I thought, if I'm going to drown, let me go out in style, okay? And, and I walk in, and I think, what's the worst that could happen? And, and there are no children here, so there's no way I'm going to get embarrassed. And, and I look to my right, and I see a guy in shorts, in a wheelchair, an amputee, Ready to go into the pool. When I was nine years old, I went for my actual first swimming lesson. And it was in Halsen in Northwest London. And I remember I was really excited. I had this big afro I had here then, you may not believe it. But I had this big afro, I had my shorts on, I didn't even have a swimming cap, it was just afro, I was just letting it go. And um, I remember running into the swimming pool with my friends and we were really excited because this was going to be swimming And uh, one of the teachers says to me, McQueen. I said, yes, sir. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going swimming, sir. He said, you can't swim. I said, I know, sir. That's why I'm going to learn. And he said, well, you know what it is. Black boys, your bones are too heavy. You'll sink to the bottom of the pool and you'll drown. (laughs) And I believed him. (laughs) And I was like, Oh my God, I'm the black boy, I'm going to drown. And all my other friends who were there who had a similar hue to myself, they totally ignored him and they went off to swim, but I was totally frightened. And for those of you who can remember your first swimming lessons, if they're anything like me, do you remember those little floats we used to have? The little polystyrene floats? For those of you who are trying to be in denial that you're not as old as me, don't deny, just be honest, okay? We had those little floats and I was the kid with the float. And I could always remember vividly in my head, the teacher would say, keep your bum up, McQueen. And I'd be kind of like going through the pool, like, I'm trying, sir, I really am trying. And it was absolutely embarrassing, because all my friends, they would go, and we would have the assembly, and they would go off, and they would get, do you remember the certificates you got for swimming 25 meters and 50 meters? And, and they would be absolutely brilliant. I didn't get anything. But my parents, my parents are from the Caribbean, my mum's from Barbados, and my dad's from Grenada. And I remember going to the Caribbean and getting really excited because, you know, my mom didn't want me to go into the sea in England. She said it was too cold uh, for me. I knew I was just going to drown. And um, But I was there, and it was warm, and it was lovely. And I remember going down to the beach and, and seeing all these people, like, running and just going into the sea and loving it and just absolutely enjoying it because this is Barbados. This is fun. We're going to go and have a swim. And I remember just walking up to the beach thinking I'm not going any further than the water going up to my knees. And I would dip my head into the water like, yeah and I would throw the water on me and I'd be so excited and I was standing there and people would be beckoning me to go into the sea and I'd be like, no, it's okay and I would just dip my head into the water and again, as I say, I'm quite tall so I can go quite far but I didn't want the water to go past my knees. Now, I'm quite a confident person and that confidence held me in good stead because, uh, My wife, a lovely lady sitting there, uh, I started dating her when we were 19. I remember my dad had always said to me, he said, David, whenever you're courting, old school, okay, whenever you're courting, I want you to always know that you treat a young lady like a princess, and she will treat you like her prince. And, and, and this is proper old school, you can tell my that. And he actually speaks like this. And, 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 and if she is the woman for you, you treat her like a queen, and she will treat you like her king. So yes, you are looking at King Dave. And what would happen is I would really want to impress her. So I would. Do, I used to be a singer, and I would go out, and I would, I would take her to the concert, and I would sing, and I would, you know, I'd be the kind of person that I would open the door for her. We're married now. I don't do it anymore. But I would open the door for her, and, and I would make sure that I'd be really chivalrous. We'd go out. I wanted to really impress her. And I wanted to show her that my game was on. My game was strong. This is the guy who you wanted to be your future husband. This is going to be your chocolate boy wonder, okay? This is the guy who you wanted to be for the future. I really, I really brought my game on. There was no way that this woman would know. This guy is super confident. And one day she says to me, Dave, let's go swimming. <laughs> game over. So she didn't know I can't swim, okay? I didn't tell her. And again, as I said, I thought, you know, I'm going to go and I'm, I'm going to go to the swimming lesson and uh, I'll be with her. I'll impress her. I'll just stay in the shallow end and she won't know. Because I'm six foot two. And in most swimming pools, I can walk from one end to the other end without anybody knowing. And, you know, I could just. Think, and, no, and no one would really know. So, if any of you have ever been swimming in Harrow, uh, that's why I was brought up, brought up in Harrow. So, Harrow Leisure Center, amazing swimming pool. And we decided to go swimming, and I'm, I'm watching this fantastic specimen of womanhood just swim from one end to the other. And I'm in this shallow end, just dipping my head in the water and throwing it on me and feeling really great and just, uh, just wondering. Now, she stopped in the middle of the pool after she'd been swimming, and she stopped, just stopped, and was looking over at me, and she beckoned me hither. She said, Dave, actually, she's, she said, Dave, come here. And I'm like, hell yeah. (laughs) So I I saw where she was going, so I thought I'd do my little wade in the water and make my way over to her, dipping my head under and coming back up again. Now, Leisure Center is shaped like a trapezium. So what that means is that the deep end is in the middle. Nobody told me. And so there I am, I'm making my way towards her And and, and I'm doing my thing. I'm bopping through the water, and I'm dipping my head underneath, and I'm walking through. And, and, And then I take a step. And my foot hits the bottom of the pool. And then I look up. And all I see is water. And I'm thinking, I'm 19. I'm too young to drown. And I don't know if I prayed or I farted. Something happened, but I propelled myself up through the water, and I started this cacophony and and this wave-making machine at the top of the water. And I can see her coming towards me and laughing. I'm drowning (laughs) and dying. And she's laughing while swimming towards me. I'm making waves in the water trying to stay afloat because I know I can't swim. And I'm thinking, I can feel all this water going in my nose and in my mouth. And I'm thinking I'm going to die. And she comes and she grabs me. I feel her arms around me. I'm feeling so safe. But I'm still looking at the lifeguards. Why didn't any one of you come and save me? (laughs) She pulls me to the side and she says, Dave, you know what? You really need to learn how to swim. By this time, I know the game was done, I'm upset, I don't care, I'm like, leave me alone, shut up, go away, I don't really care, thank you for saving me anyway, I'm not going to swim. And and she said, let me break it down to you, we're going to have children one day, and what's going to happen is we're going to go swimming, and I'm going to be in the shallow end, and I'm going to be teaching them how to swim, and and you're going to be in the deep end, and you're going to be drowning, and I'm going to leave you, and you're going to die. So I thought that was enough of a warning, okay, I'm going to, really and I put it off for a little while, but then our first daughter was born, and I thought, well, you know what, my wife does, never gives a promise that she doesn't keep, so I'm going to go out, and I'm going to learn how to swim. So there I am, 30 years old, and I, I walk out into this pool, and I, I look, and, and, and as you can guess, I'm not politically correct in any way, so I'm just going to say it off the cuff. I walk, and I see this guy in the wheelchair, and in my head, I didn't say this out loud, but in my head, I'm thinking... Where are you going? And he looks at me like he could read my mind. And he says, you think I can't swim, don't you? And you know when you get really embarrassed and your voice goes really high? I was like, no, I never said anything. I didn't, I didn't say anything. And he said, don't worry. A lot of people make the assumption. So we were exchanging uh, our names. And he was, he was asking me why I was there. And I said to him, look, when I was a lot younger, um, I went to school and this guy put this, this message in my head. A lot of my family, they never swim. And I've never seen any black people in the Olympics. And that was before 2012. And, you know, and in my head, I didn't think that you know, I could swim. And he said to me, he said, I'm going to tell you, son, it's all in the mind. I said, no, 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 I don't. And I said, look, I'm here because one of my best friends, he's actually going to teach me how to swim today. I'm going to learn. He's going to teach me how to swim. Fabian, a lovely guy from Cork. So I asked him, well, what, what had happened? Do you mind if, if I ask you, you know, what had happened with, um, with, your, with your legs? He said, well, I was in a really terrible car accident," he said. "I used to be really, you know, I loved swimming before, and I I, I was always really passionate about just going out with my friends and swimming in the sea and what have you. Then I was in a a multiple pileup, and the only way they could get me out of the car, they had to actually cut me out of the car. That was the only way they could to get me out of the wreckage. And he said, you know, and I was at home and um, I was feeling really sorry for myself, feeling really down. The end of my life has changed, everything's gone, you know. But my friends continued to say to me, they were a real strong sense of support. And he said that they said to him, there are individuals out there who are blind, who are deaf, who've got one arm, one leg, and they have learned to swim. So what's your excuse? Why are you making an excuses and just sitting here and moping? I'm thinking, damn, I ain't glad I'm on the, I haven't got friends like you. But he said, you know, they were, they were quite supportive. And he said, and then one day I decided that I'm going to go out and I'm going to learn how to swim. And he said, and I got back into the pool and I realized it was mind over matter. If I put my mind to it, I could start to swim again. And he said, and I learned to move the emphasis away from my legs to my upper body strength and started to swim, started to swim again. And he said to me, and that's all it takes. And I'm like, yeah, right, whatever. But I saw him get out of the wheelchair and I saw him lower himself into the water and I saw him starting to swim lengths in that swimming pool, up and down. And I'm pleased to say that day I learned how to swim. I learned how to swim because I realized that, as with so many other things in life, we can either let ourselves go forward with it or stay where we are, depending on how courageous we want to be, as to whether or not we want to actually take that jump when we get to the cliff edge, as to really if we're going to allow people or other thoughts in our mind to stop us from doing things. Sometimes we take a lot for granted and we can be scared of things only because we don't try them. And it took that man to remind me Of where my power really lay, and that was in my mind. I'm not the best swimmer. My wife no longer has to save me, but I'm glad for the opportunity that I did take that leap and I started to swim. Thank you very much. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Okay, so um, I'm just going to read out a couple more. Someone said, uh, what has been your greatest act of heroism? Only mild heroism. I rushed downstairs and out of the front door, wrapped only in a quilt, to stop three men from beating someone up outside my window. More than mild heroism. Who was it? Anyone want to say? Yes. Well done, you. And you managed to as well. So these, these, there was three guys beating another guy up outside your house. Wow. And how did you manage to get them to go away?
3: Young men, stop that.
2: <laughs> Very effective, I find. Yes. And the higher pitch, the more, the more powerful. Yeah. Yeah, woman in a quilt. Yeah. Just pretend to be uh, mad is sometimes I find quite a, quite a good technique. And uh, this one I quite liked, I quite related to. Um, what has been your greatest act of heroism? Every Mother's Day that I've attended since 1976. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to introduce our next story of Daring Do for tonight. Please give your most sparkling welcome to Richard, ladies and gentlemen.
4: On the 8th of June, in 1982, uh, I was at work. I was 18 years old, and I was on the other side of the world. I was in a place called the Falkland Islands, and I was in the army. At the time, I was facing a really difficult decision. And the decision was was how I was going to die. The choices I had was, do I stay on this ship that's burning, and probably burn to death, or do I go in that sea and freeze and drown? Now, I'll, I'll rewind a couple of months before that, in the April, I was on a, a luxury cruise liner which had been requisitioned by the MOD for a troop transport ship, and we were about to leave the harbour. It was amazing. There was 2,500 guys on this ship, all between the ages of 18 and 30, all at peak fitness, And across from us, in the viewing area, was like a wall of women. (laughs) You know, it was the wives, girlfriends, others, (laughs) (laughs) mistresses, you know. And some of them were behaving really badly, you know, they were. (laughs) (laughs) And it really was, I mean, we was in this ship, and it was like a wall of testosterone and a wall of oestrogen over there, you know. It was, anyway, at two o'clock, the ship sounded its horn pulled away from the harbour. All the ships in the harbour sounded the horns for good luck. The band of the Royal Marines was playing Life on the Ocean Wave, a land of hope and glory. And we pulled out. Now, as we pulled out, the, the, the noise of the band slowly disappeared. Um, and there was a little flotilla of boats that followed us out, lots of little boats, and people, people were actually waving hankies. As the afternoon went on, I was, I'd stayed at the back of the ship watching, and slowly, one by one, all these little boats peeled away, and we were on our own, and it went very quiet, and there were no bands playing anymore, and nobody cheering, uh, and and that ship just kept heading south. We landed in a place called San Carlos. Now, nothing much happened there for a while. I mean, we we had a few air raids, and were bombed a few times, but mainly the Argentine Air Force was, was going for the ships. So... We, it wasn't too bad for a, for a week or so. And, uh, but we were told we were going to be the engineer's support for the Welsh Guards. And we had to wait for the Welsh Guards to get there when they got there. We were then going to travel around to a place called Fitzroy for the final push on Port Stanley, for the final battle to take Port Stanley to end the war. I ended up on a ship called the RFA Sir Galahad. Uh, we went round to this bay called Fitzroy... Now, there's a thing in the army called hurry up and wait. We were told to be in the tank deck. Now, the tank deck's the great big hold. It's it's, it's in the bowels of the ship. Be in the tank deck, 6 o'clock in the morning, ready to move. Of course, it was hurry up and wait. We were there at 6 in the morning, all ready to go. And we were still there at 9 (laughs) o'clock. We were still there at midday. Still there at 2 o'clock. And thankfully, my section commander said, sod this, let's go upstairs. Let's go up to the deck. And thank God he did. we, we were going up through the ship, up to the deck, and uh, there was just two whooshes went overhead, and the klaxons went off, and it was hands-to-action stations, hands-to-action. And the world went black. It just went black. About, I'm not sure, I think it was three to five minutes later, I sort of came round, and I remember seeing sparks. There was a cable dangling, and there was these electrical sparks coming off it. And I saw this light in a doorway, and it was the way out, and I just shook my head, got my bearings, and I went for it. And as I got out, it was the stairwell, and the deck to get out was just up there. There was a hatchway to get out, but unfortunately only one or two people could get through that hatchway at a time. And behind it, down the stairs, there was just a sea of guys trying to get out, So I looked down the stairwell, down through the smoke. It was thick, black choking smoke. And I could hear the screams of men dying, and the flames, I could see them coming up, the red glow coming up through the smoke. And I thought, oh, God, sod this. And then I did something I'm very ashamed of to this day. But I was very young, wary, and fit. Not like now. It was built for speed back then. And I was full of adrenaline. And I grabbed the collar of the guy in front of me. I put my foot in his back. And I ran across the top of them. Ran up the stairs. Across the top of them. All of their shoulders and heads. I remember a couple of punches coming up once or twice as I was doing it. And I saw this little semicircle of light. And I went for it. And I fell through the, part. I fell through the door and landed on the deck. And... As I turned around and looked, this big whoosh and this ball of flame came out behind me. Now, I turned and and looked in the doorway, and there was like three guys trying to get out at the same time, and the guy in the middle was a guy from my troop called Brummy. What I didn't realise at the time was that he'd actually come all the way up from the tank deck. He'd actually walked through the flames to get out. Um, Anyway, he had his hand out, so I grabbed his hand... And I leaned back and I pulled him to get him out. And his glove came off in my hand and my bum at the floor. And I looked at my hand and thought, why is he wearing a glove? And this black, sticky glove. And I looked at his hand and I saw th- the bones of his fingers and the flesh. I, I pulled the burned skin off his hand. So I-, I leaned forward and I grabbed him by the scruff. And I saw in his eyes, he, he was in shock. He was He was on another planet, but I just pulled him out and we fell to the floor and I looked around me outside and then actually another couple of like human torches came out behind him I looked around me on the deck um, it was just chaos but at the front of the ship the helicopters were picking up, winching up the wounded which shows you how long I must have been out for now Brummy just started walking that way thank god but he was walking like you know like in a zombie film i'd just seen him walking away from me through the sort of smoke like that and i thought i've got to get off this this is terrible this is horrible so to the left there was a queue um for the life rafts and the life rafts those inflatable orange things that you see unfortunately the ship was designed to carry stores not people so there wasn't really enough life rafts, and the lifeboats were up on the superstructure, and there was no way I was getting up there. You know, that's where the you see the, the, uh, where the wheelhouse is. It uh, was just flames and smoke. So I queued up for this life raft. Now you can get maximum of 16 on them. Um, they will take 20, but no more than that. I mean, maximum 16, emergency 20. And I always thought, well, what's not an emergency? You know, if you're going to get in one of them. But anyway, as I was (laughs) went forward in the queue and this sergeant who was counting them off his hand came in front of me I thought, bloody typical. You know, and I watched the last guy go over the side or down the scramble net. Now, in the army there was actually quite a big gap between it's difficult to explain but I was a sapper, I was a private and he was a sergeant and there's like a it's just the way you talk to each other. There's, there's, there's a sort of respect between them. And I said, well, what do we do now, Sarge? And he put his hand on my shoulder in a really paternal way and just said, we're on our own. Um, I looked around the deck, and there was... The, the hatch was open, there were explosions coming out. It's, it's very difficult to explain, the noise was colossal. And I thought, I'm not staying on this ship. So I climbed over the scramble net, and I just hung onto the side... I just, I'm not going to die up there. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die in there. And then a miracle happened. Out in the harbour, out in Fitzroy Harbour, there was a thing called a Mexi float. It's a ship to, about the size of of this room, sort of, with a ramp either side of it. It's a ship to shore vessel. It basically, as it says, it picks stores up from the ships and takes them to the beach. Um, It's literally like a floating platform with a ramp either the side, and I saw it coming towards us. The reason I know it was coming towards us is I could see the white face of the guy. And it pulled up alongside, and there was an avalanche of guys that just poured over the side. We got on this maxi float. The last guy off was that sergeant, and he shouted, Go! And, And we pulled away. And he took us safely to the shore. I looked back at that ship, The bombing of the, there was about 350 of us on that ship. Um, The casualty figures were 56 killed, 60 seriously injured, and another 90 injured. Um, I was very, very lucky to get off. Now, I met that guy who came and picked us up because no ship was coming near us. And I met him when everybody had the order not to come anywhere near that ship because it was going to blow. He just came out, and he saved a lot of men. Now, we had a troop reunion about two or three years ago, and I met him. And one of the things that really amazed me about him, apart from his genuine modesty, was his bemusement that everybody said he was a hero. He saved a lot of men that day. The other thing I really noticed about him was how anonymous he was. You'd walk past him in the street, and you would never know uh, so really what I've got to say on that to end is if you're on the tube sometime and there's an anonymous guy sat in front of you or you're walking down the street and there's just an anonymous guy walks past you, you never know he may just be a real hero. Thank you.
2: noticed that our stories uh, in Spark are varied and, and are very very different and that's because we uh, find these people our open mics that happen in Hackney and in Brixton and I saw you tell that story in Hackney for the first time and I saw you tell it here again and, and both times it's really really affected me um, thank you very much for sharing your story with us um, please welcome the last storyteller of the evening it's Imogen
3: So I was three when I decided what I wanted to be when I grew up. And being three, I thought I'll tell my mother. And I said, mommy, I know what I want to be when I grow up. And she said, as mothers do, what's that? And I said, I want to be a farmer's wife. Good 60s feminist that she was, she said, why don't you want to be a farmer? And I said, but, Mummy, only men can be farmers. Took a few years, but I was seven when I changed my mind, and I decided I actually wanted to be a journalist. I'm still not quite sure where this came from. I think it was because I wrote a story uh, that apparently had a beginning, a middle, and an end, which is a big deal in 1980s Brixton, and I got sent to the headmaster. From then on, writing was my thing. But I didn't know how to be a journalist, so I thought, well, I'd better learn. So I went to university, and I edited my student paper. And then I went to journalism school. Uh, and I studied some, and I learned a lot of theory. And I thought, okay, this is great, but how do I actually be this? And then one morning, and I was really quite hungover, just for a change, um, I came into college. And I looked at the notice board, and it had a square of A4 paper on it, and the type on it said, Wanted News Assistant, Wall Street Journal Europe. And I did a proper double take, and I looked around the room, and I thought, has anyone else seen this? Is this like the Wall Street Journal, as in that minor paper from that small country called America? No way. But it was, and I applied, and I got the job. News assistant, £7 an hour. First day in the job, turned up in this office. Amazing people. I've never met people like that in my life. Glamorous people, exciting, cosmopolitan, educated, linguistic, traveled all over the world, wrote stuff about things that mattered and knew how because they'd been there and they'd talked to people and they were incredible. And there was me in the middle of it. My job was sorting faxes, because people still sent faxes in those days, Um, and doing things like organizing the journalist cutting files, which is actually the most important job I had because journalists get really arsey if their cuttings are in the wrong order. And it took me, it was so busy, it actually took me a few days to notice that the cubicle next to mine was empty. And after about a day, I stuck my head around it, and it didn't look like a journalist cubicle. It had a a rug, a Persian rug in it, and it had a, a hooker, you know, those things they smoke in in uh, cheap Middle Eastern restaurants. And I said, what's going on in there? And somebody said, oh, they said, that's Danny's desk. And I said, OK. And I said, no, he's the Middle East correspondent. He travels a lot. He's not here very often. And I said, OK, fine. All right. Desk next to me is empty. That's cool. Uh, the next day, actually, as it happened, the editor called me into his office. And he said, yeah, we need your help. We can't find Danny. And I said, OK you're the editor, and he said, yeah, we we think he's in um, uh, Azerbaijan, uh, but we're not sure, and can you find him, and I sort of said it was like my third week, so I said, yeah, all right, okay, I'll try, Uh, so I went back to my desk, and I went online, and I looked up whatever website we used before Google, and I started Googling uh, hotels in Azerbaijan, and I learned quite quickly that there were quite a lot of them, even if you only went to the expensive ones and that um, most people said nyet a lot, which is Azerbaijani, Russian for no. And I spent all day doing that and having a lot of people saying nyet. But I didn't like to tell the editor because it was like my third week. The next morning, the editor came by my desk. He said, oh, don't worry about that Danny thing. We found him. And I said, really? He said, yeah, yeah. He sent an email last night. Um, He's in Astrakhan. Astrakhan. Awesome. I decided I didn't like this Danny guy very much. That feeling lasted about three days, because three days later I walked into the office and standing next to my desk was this tall, lean, beautiful, dark-haired, brown-eyed, laughing, charming man who extended a sunburnt hand to me and shook mine and said, Hi, I'm Danny. I'm still not quite sure what my reaction was, but I think it was very Bridget Jonesy and I was mentally revising my opinion very fast, which was clearly quite obvious, because from that moment on, Danny had me round his little finger, and he absolutely knew it. So, you want to send a fax to a Middle Eastern country with a really long phone number that's probably wrong? That'd be me. Danny needs someone to go to company's house and look up a company with an Arabic name that could be spelled any one of half a dozen ways and find the company counts for the last five years, that'd be me. Danny's Cuttings File, immaculate. (laughs) And as I did Danny's Cuttings File, I actually started to read his writing, and I started to appreciate, actually, on top of everything else, he was also a really amazing journalist. Uh, He was uh, American-Israeli. Uh, he traveled all over the Middle East. That story, you, if you're not current affairs geeks, you're probably not with me on this, but that story about the factory in Sudan that Clinton bombed, that turned out to be just a fertilizer factory, that was Danny who exposed that. The story he was writing in, um, in Astrakhan turned out to be about faking caviar. His whole life was about explaining the Middle East to America and vice versa, about bridging that gap and about writing the stories using words to explain one world to another. This didn't help my little crush on Danny. (laughs) So things went on. Um, He continued to pay me enough attention to get, and I did the things that, you know, one does at work. Um, And then after a couple of months, Danny went on holiday to Paris, and Danny came back, with stars in his eyes and the most enormous smile. And he'd met a girl called Marianne, who was Brazilian and beautiful and lived in Paris and yada yada. Danny being Danny, it wasn't long before he persuaded the editor that actually he could do his job just as well from Paris and the arms of the lovely Marianne as he could from London. Obviously, I helped organize the move. <laughs> There was much phony of companies about boxes and and, uh, relocation of stuff. Uh, And a few weeks later, he was gone to Paris and the arms of the lovely Marianne. I left the Wall Street Journal a few weeks later. Weeks? Months? Not long afterwards. I had decided after all that that really International Current Affairs was the world for me. I wanted to be one of those people. I wanted to be like that. Uh, In England, there's only one place you go, really, if you want to do that, and that's the BBC World Service. So I went and got a job there. Although, actually, my path and Danny's path did cross again. It took a few years. Uh, I was a freelance correspondent, journalist, producer, editor for the news and current affairs at BBC World Service. Uh, And board of being in London, I sent myself on assignment to East Timor. I was only a producer, but in East Timor, they seemed to think I was a correspondent and I wasn't going to argue with them because I got rides on helicopters. And towards the end of my trip in East Timor, I was staying with a friend called Stephen who worked for the UN. Uh, We'd been down at the beach drinking sundowners and we'd come back to the house and we were expecting people around for dinner and I remember kind of being in a sundress over my bikini and drinking gin and tonics and listening to the World Service and it was all terrifically colonial. And then the bulletin ending with a guy saying, breaking news, reports are coming in that South Asia Wall Street Journal correspondent Daniel Powell has been kidnapped in Karachi, Pakistan. And I remember going absolutely cold. Over the next few days, we found out more. Danny had been following a story about uh, Islamic fundamentalism in Pakistan. Uh, He'd followed a lead, he'd been offered an interview, he'd got in a car, and he'd disappeared. It emerged also from chats among Wall Street Journal correspondents that Danny had actually decided that, really, he'd been doing this stuff long enough, and it was time that he hung up his boots. Uh, The lovely Marianne was pregnant, and he thought, I'm going to be a new father, it's time to step down from this frontline work. The American government condemned his kidnapping. His kidnappers announced they had him ask for the release of uh, a group of Pakistanis who were in prison, or they would kill Danny. The lovely Marianne, who turned out to be as gracious and as brave as she was lovely, made public appeals for the life of her husband and the father of her unborn child I finished my assignment in East Timor. I flew back to London. I was due on shift pretty much the evening I landed. So I went in horribly jet-lagged, and I arrived in the office pretty much on time to see. And we had this huge office with loads of kind of um, terminals, obviously, and television screens uh, on the walls. And I walked in just in time to see the white-faced editor of the Wall Street Journal in New York, walking out to give a statement to confirm that the video they had received of Danny was genuine and that he was dead beheaded he was the first one I don't actually remember much of that evening I remember that the story led the bulletins the whole night. I remember that none of us watched the video or listened to the audio. I do remember that his kidnappers, just before he died, had made Danny kneel and had made my charming, cosmopolitan, international, committed, charming friend turn to the camera and say, I am a Jew. Of all the things I thought I would end up doing in the career in which he and others inspired me to take, reporting on his murder was not one of them. Many things happened after he died. Um, There was a book, a collection of his essays published. Um, His body was found many months later buried in a shallow grave outside Karachi, Pakistan. His wife wrote a book. It's called A Mighty Heart. There was a movie in which she was played by Angelina Jolie. She really is that beautiful. Um, I left journalism for reasons completely unrelated and went into international aid work and spent the next 10 years um, obviously doing something a lot safer than being an international correspondent. But the thing I think um, I'm really left with at the end of the whole Danny story is that for all those things that happened, and there's a foundation, and there's money raised, and they do great things. They really do. Um, My acquaintance with Danny was a slight one, and it was passing, but there were many, many people who loved him. And all those people would, in a heartbeat, rather have him back than any of those good works that have happened since... So the thing that Danny really leaves me with, I think, is that you can be the best in the business if taking risks is your business. Sooner or later, you're going to get caught out. So I never did become a farmer's wife, but I did give up international aid, and I am back here now trying to make this my home and hoping London is slightly safer. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Imogen. I think another theme that's come up has basically true honesty. People being honest in front of a room full of strangers, which I think deserves a round of applause. Thank you very much. We've been Spark London. You've been wonderful. Thank you.